so, so welcome. So tonight I'm going to be talking about sexuality and shame, right? <laughs> okay, good, because we're on the same page. Now there shame page. are. You're <laughs> 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 on fire tonight. We're on the shame natural, page. Natural, um, Now there are some sensitive issues that I bring up, and uh, so just be aware of that. But if we remain silent about sexuality and shame, people remain in the shadows. Mm -hmm. uh, churches are silent. Uh, families don't talk about it. It's uncomfortable. Society talks around it. And celebrities and politicians dismiss it. Uh, in Libri, I've heard countless stories. Um, there was a woman who came, lovely woman. She had been molested by her father. In shame, he sent her to a Catholic school where she was promptly molested by the choir director. And so she had a life full of sex addiction and hated herself for it. Um, and so she came to Labrie, tried to wrestle through those issues. We had um, a young lady who had been molested by her brother. They were a homeschool family. And the, the daughter felt, or the sister felt great shame. And the, the brother became a Christian later on and felt great remorse. He repented. He asked her forgiveness and he felt restored, but she has struggled in a life of um, drugs, alcohol, and addiction. Uh, just suffering and struggling with this. Uh, there are <clears throat> men who come and women who struggle with pornography addictions. That's a high percentage. Uh, the highest, um, the percentage of divorces, the number one reason for divorce is pornography. Pornography wow. addictions. Yep. Uh, there's the shame of infertility. Julie and I experienced that. Divorce. Uh, single people beyond marriageable age feel a sense of shame. A single person who feels shame for having sexual desire and then feeling shame for not expressing it out in culture. So they're shame from both sides. Um, and there's a particular loneliness for those who are asexual or who choose to remain celibate as a gay person, um, I could tell you stories, heartbreaking stories for hours. And it's one of the primary things that I talk to people about. Um, I've, I've heard a lot. And so society's best way to deal with sexual shame is trying to minimize it, or it has, uh, or at least try to minimize the importance of sex, at least before the Me Too movement. Uh, and just to say, well, it's just simply a biological exchange. No big deal. Okay? Yet, there's this contradiction that happens in society that says, well, actually, it's no big deal. It's just a biological exchange. Yet, it's the place for identity, fulfillment, and happiness. <laughs> what is it? You know, they're speaking in contradictions. And all the while, the church remains silent. But I think that this is where the Christian can speak the boldest. I'm surprised that the church doesn't. I'm surprised pastors have heard the stories that I've heard. So I'm surprised they don't speak. Perhaps there's people in their congregation that they're afraid of wanting to speak. And uh, I have the advantage of people coming through and leaving. <laughs> and you don't know them. But what if people are in your midst? It's hard to talk about. Um, perhaps they're afraid of what society might think of them if they speak more boldly. Uh, perhaps they, uh, it's because of their own sexual sin and it holds them back from wanting to speak out. Perhaps it's all three. But for whatever reason, as Christians, particularly in the church, we cannot remain silent any longer. 
We keep people in the shadows of shame, pain, and addiction. And we fail to develop practices in our churches to be places of hope and restoration. So for those of you here with your own story of sexuality and shame, I can ask, is there hope? And I say, yes, there is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The Bible speaks very honestly about sex and sexual dysfunction. It's so honest, in fact, that it makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> and people don't preach from it. But the Bible can be honest because it can point to a real hope. We may avoid difficult discussions because we might not know if there's hope in the darkness. But the Bible points to the light of the gospel. It speaks of living waters, washing us clean, leading us into a journey of restoration and maturity. So tonight I have four areas of reflection. Okay, this four areas of reflection, and I'm going to follow the biblical narrative. Creation, fall, the gospel, and the new family in Christ. And I wanted to go through the Bible as a story because I want us to reimagine our own sexual narratives, reimagine through the light of the biblical narrative as a way of understanding and being honest with it and also having the hope um, and the guidance in it. And, and ultimately leading us to, see the, um, to pursue the hope that Jesus gives us. So the first reflection is creation. Sex is good. Sex is good. So we have to start there. Let's say sex is good. Um, it's surprising that the church sometimes says it's not good or don't talk about it. But uh, God does not, uh, is not silent about the goodness. When he created everything, he said it's very good. And that included sex. Um, it's the place where we see the blessing of children. It's that, you know, I had a friend who said, uh, he, he said the first spiritual experience he had was when he saw his child come out of his wife. Mm -hmm. And he said it was just so unnerving, so, something mystical, something magical, something spiritual happening. And that's the place that sex brings us forth. Um, at least before technology made things change. <clears throat> it's where we find emotional, relational, and spiritual blessings. Uh, it's a place where it has good purposes and a care for the other. Sexuality is a part of what God calls very good. It's not good for Adam <clears throat> to be alone. So when he sees Eve, he recites poetry. He gets poetic. He doesn't say, okay, good, utility. No, he wants to be poetic about it. Uh, the Bible's telling you something. And then Jesus says it's something that God put together as something very special. What God put together, let no one separate. Uh, marriage is to unite two families. It's not just to unite two lovers. It's, it's to unite two families. And through sex, they enlarge those families and unite those families. And as Adam and Eve see each other's naked bodies, they feel no shame. From the very beginning, sex includes unity, delight, pleasure, solidarity, security. I mean, this is good. It's good. God's first command in all the Bible, outside of let there be light, to humanity is have sex. Isn't that amazing, his first command? So why is he telling them to have sex? He's calling them to have sex so that they might fill the earth. Fill the earth so that it might be gardened well. Now, when the Bible speaks about gardens, it's talking about culture. It's not just 
Garden Care is talking about the birth of music, literature, architecture, economics. And so some people will not call this, they call this command the cultural mandate, that God is calling them to be cultural. And so sex is the impetus for the birth of culture. It's not just for their personal delight, it's not just for babies, but the development of life in earth, to cover the earth so that it might flourish, develop, become cultural. So sex is not just a private, um, consensual act, it is that, but it's also a common good. Sex is a common good. Sometimes it's hard for us in our modern lives to think of sex as a common good. Not just a common pleasure or something that we all get to do or hope to get to do, but it's a common good. It's for society. It's for the good of creation. <clears throat> now, <laughs> I'm a very private person, and uh, so that I'm talking about this is fantastic. But uh, when I'm reading a book, I usually hide the title. I'm very private. I don't want people to know what I'm reading, and I don't want to have conversations about what I'm reading. So don't ask me what I'm reading. Um, but uh, so I get on the plane and with Julia, but Julia is not private at all. <laughs> Julia just says what's on her mind and she is unashamed, uh, which is great. And uh, Julia, we, we got on the plane and we sat down in a row of three. And Julia pulls out her book and I look over to see what it is and it says real sex. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a Christian book on sex, and I was horrified. I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. Not only she's just, like, letting it sit there, and she opens it to her chapter, and she's like, oh, I forgot my pencil. So she leans down, and she's digging through her purse trying to find her pencil, which seems to take forever. And I look across me, and there is an older man sitting there. We both look at the book, and the title is Communal Sex. And I look up, and I see her. I mean, I see him. And we both turn away. <laughs> we don't want to look at each other. <laughs> and Julie just keeps on reading. Um, I did eventually read that book, and what uh, Lauren Winter was writing about was saying that sex is for the common good, that it's for the community. So when we have people who get married, we are calling our friends and family together so that we can witness this act of these people becoming united. Uh, but it, it's also a witness of what the sexual act will produce, produce a family of families, in families. It's, it's this beautiful thing. It's not just something individualistic and orgasmic. It's, it's communal, and it's good. Now, Lauren Winter also talked about in that book how there's one girl who was raised in the church, and she was always told that her sexual desires was something bad to repress. She shouldn't have sexual desires. So she pushed them down and pushed them down. And thought, okay, whenever she had sexual desires, she thought they were dirty. Um, she was never taught that they were good um, in context, this kind of thing. Well, finally she got married. Finally she could have sex. They go on their honeymoon, and it's a disaster. And they have long, it's a long impact on the marriage. The marriage really struggled in, in the bed. Because she thought, what my husband and I are doing is dirty and wrong because she had not taught, been taught that it was very good. She didn't know how to think about it. So the church, by remaining silent on the goodness of sex, can communicate a lot. Okay? The silence 
uh, that the church has on the goodness of sex can communicate a lot about how we view sex. Sex can be seen as dangerous, bad, but all the while it's celebrated in society. Okay. But then when, let's say someone discovers, let's say that they have sex with somebody and discovers, actually there is a lot of goodness to it. There's some good things. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it can lead them to start thinking, if they haven't had the narrative that sex is also good, then it leads them to think, oh, the church must be wrong. Oh, everything I must have been taught was untrue. <coughs> and so I've been taught a lie, a repressive lie. And so the church, by being silent, is actually creating doubt around belief in God. Uh, or, um, or that sex is just mere utility. This is Margaret Atwood uh, in her book, The Handmaid's Tale, that sex is just utility. It's just about procreation. But the Bible speaks even after the fall of Adam and Eve of the goodness of sex. Not just of utility, but of its pleasure. The Song of Songs, it speaks of lovers longing for one another in very descriptive language. One time I had the audacity to quote Song of Songs in the pulpit. And I had people just wiping their brow. <laughs> it was so intense. It was like, I can't believe he's talking like this in the pulpit. And I was reading the Bible, you see. Um, and so it's this descriptive language that good, loving sex praises God. Good, loving sex praises God. In fact, it's reflective of his love for his people. The, the primary metaphor of God throughout the Bible is lover. So how might we recover language and descriptions of good sexuality one that has society longing for the biblical view. Mm. How might we speak about sex in a way that society longs for the, for the biblical view of sex? It seems that we're very far from that. Okay, so the second reflection, uh, the fall. Um, I said creation, sex is good. The fall, sex is complicated. Okay? <laughs> it's complicated. There's good reason to be afraid of sex. Um, there's been a lot of damage done and a lot of shame caused. As soon as Adam and Eve turn away from God to trust themselves, their first experience, sexual shame. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In fact, not only do they cover themselves, they hide in the trees, and then they start blaming each other. It gets bad. <clears throat> we need to be honest about this as well, that sex is a created good. The Bible affirms it as very good even after the fall, yet sexuality is not the place where we can place our hope because sin touches every area of life. It touches the area of sexuality as well. And in fact, since sex was good for creation and created for cultural development, its distortion will create cultural distortion, societal distortion. It's not just personal psychological issues. It causes social issues when sex is distorted. And we hear the Bible speak very honestly about this. I'm just going to give I'm going to run through some. In Genesis 19, we read of incest, when Lot's daughters sleep with their father in order to have children. One of them is called Moab, which is important to remember. In Genesis 34, we read of Dinah's rape and her father Judah's negligence, her brothers 
rage and vengeance to actually protect their own reputation. Dinah is pretty much neglected in a lot of that narrative. In Genesis 38, we read of Tamar, whose husband and next husband will have sex with her, but they will not produce a child through her, which denies her the security she needs. I'm not talking about psychological security. I'm talking about economic security, a place in this world, protections for herself. And so what ends up happening is they forget her, they neglect her. So she has to dress herself as a prostitute in order to convince Judah, who the family line is supposed to be responsible to give her a child. The only way that he will sleep with this woman and happen to give her a baby is if she's a prostitute, but not if she's Tamar. That's messed up. Mm -hmm. In Judges 19, we hear of a priest's concubine thrown out to a mob for them to sexually abuse and leave for dead. Not surprisingly, the biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble calls many of these the texts of terror. Most famously, we read of Bathsheba and David in 2 Samuel. You probably know the story. David's the king. He neglects him to go to war, and he has idle hands, and he sees Bathsheba bathing while her husband is away fighting his war. And yet David uses his power to take this innocent woman and to basically assault her. It's not a romantic love story. He takes her, and then he uses his power to cover up his wickedness by killing her husband Uriah. And then God uh, has Bathsheba and David's child that was conceived in that moment die. Yet, then it seems that David's problems end because Bathsheba becomes his wife. He ends up having a child, and God calls the child beloved. But this is where we need to pay attention to David's story. It doesn't get better. It gets way worse. It is important to see that though David receives God's forgiveness, he will continue to suffer the consequences of his sexual sin. It divides his family and ultimately divides the nation. Remember I said it has cultural consequences? One of David's sons, Amnon, falls in love with his half-sister, Absalom's sister. Amnon has Tamar cook for him and then rapes her and then tosses her out in shame with no protections. Absalom will then kill Amnon because David will never allow them to seek justice. Absalom begs and begs his dad to pursue justice. But David never pursues justice around this sexual sin. And I think it's because of his own history. Eventually, Absalom will wage war so that he can bring justice to Israel. And then Absalom dies. And David falls on his knees. Absalom, Absalom. So because of David's sin, even though he was forgiven, he suffered consequences and caused suffering for generations in his family and for the nation. Sexual shame um, and sin can often be felt in families for generations. Mm -hmm. I know it's true for my family. I assume it's true for yours. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so what are we to make of these stories? These are hard stories. Why are they included in the Bible? Uh, I want to give two reasons why I think they're in the Bible. One is because God will not be silent. He will give a voice to these stories a voice to these women, and women like them. Phyllis Tribble gave a lecture once on one of these texts of terror uh, in about a rape, and a woman came up to her in tears 
And she said, I never knew that there was a story in the Bible that was for me. The Bible gave words to her own story. She had been raped and dismissed. Often churches hide these stories that God has given us through Scripture. Pastors don't speak of them, just as we um, don't speak about horrors around sexuality we see in our own churches, our families, our societies. We often let them go unsilent, or let them go silent, unnamed. They horrify us, they shame us. Yet those most wounded by our silence are those who have suffered sexually. Those who suffer the most are those we have not addressed and named. They remain on the margins and the shadows. One of the major indictments against the Catholic Church in the U.S. was silence around the molestation charges um, uh, against children of young men and young girls. And it's had a lot of people turn away from the gospel, turn away from the church because of silence and not confessing sin. It was all silent in order to protect the church, protect the gospel. Actually, it didn't allow the gospel to shine. And so I believe that the Bible does not remain silent around these things, not because it's prescribing, but because it wants to give these women voice. It wants to give these stories a name because God sees. And I think that that's the second point, is that God is angry at these types of things. He wants to show that he has not forgotten. He has not dismissed. And he will bring justice to these things. You know, sometimes I've heard people come to Labrie and they say that uh, they, they blame themselves for the things that have happened to them. Uh, um, uh, these sexual assaults and these types of things that happen. They're like, well, it, it's my fault. Um, or they heard that in the church. You know, you know, you were you were begging for it, kind of thing. And and these people are not only hurt and harmed, they're then shamed in the church, as if they are the reason. There may be times when people have been foolish, but it never means that they deserved sexual assault. Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. They were happy, they were honorable, and yet dis destruction hits them, big time. Most of these women suffer not because of what they have done in the Bible, but because of what culture had become, something depraved. And most of these stories we hear of men who act wickedly toward these women, and then we hear the same men who abdicate responsibility to advocate for these women. These are ancient stories, but I think they speak to today's realities. God sees. God hears. Over and over again, we hear of these acts that are reprehensible to God. And so if we remain silent, people remain in the shadows of grief, nursing thoughts of self-hatred. So what hope might we have? What word of hope might we speak into this honest betrayal of sexual sin in our own lives, in our families, in our society? And it leads me to my third reflection, the gospel. Okay, this is where it gets good. We, we spent some time in the darkness, and now we're, we're preparing ourselves for some light, okay? Uh, sex is restored. Okay? The very first account that we see in the New Testament is Matthew 1, genealogy. Boring stuff. Okay? 
Who wants to study genealogies? My dad did on CDs. Remember what CDs were? <coughs> he worked a long time, and then when he passed away, we threw them away. <laughs> it's kind of sad. <laughs> but Matthew's genealogy has been kept. And Matthew is starting his genealogy because he wants to show the pedigree that Jesus comes from. Because he wants to show the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, that Jesus is coming from good Messiah pedigree. David's line. Okay? But Matthew includes very unrespectable women. That's a very unusual move. Genealogies are fascinating in the Bible once you get a handle on them. Super fascinating. Who they include, how they're organized, super fascinating. It includes Tamar, the woman who had to sleep with her father-in-law as a prostitute. Jesus' family line. Rahab, Canaanite prostitute. Family line. Uriah's wife. Matthew doesn't say Bathsheba. Uriah's wife. Don't forget. And, uh, and of course, it leads to, to Mary, whom Joseph had assumed was adulterous. Okay. Jesus does not enter into a pure family line. In fact, Matthew's emphasizing a whole history of sexual sin. That's the highlight. It's not just the murders, the greed. It's the sexual sin that's rife in Jesus' genealogy. Why does Matthew do this? I think he has many reasons why he does his genealogy. I have two ideas, okay? One, Jesus has not distanced himself like we can do from our sexual dysfunction and shame. Instead, he enters into the very history. From the beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve recognize their own shame, God promises them something. He promises that he would come to them through their own seed, the sexual act. So the very moment they sin, they feel sexual shame. But that's the very place God is going to come through and, 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 um, and declare his promises of forgiveness and restoration. That's amazing. He would bring his promises and good purposes for his creation. And so the genealogy is a fulfillment of that promise. I think the second thing is Matthew is just saying, so I know you Pharisees out there reading this and wondering about Jesus and if he's good enough and what about that Mary girl, his mother? He's like, no one is righteous, not even one. He wants to make sure everyone's on a level playing field. Only Jesus is uh, pure. And so I just want to look at a few stories of Jesus' interaction with women, and this just mind-blowing. Because in the Old Testament, you had all these series of stories of women who are sexually assaulted and harmed and not advocated for. And you have a whole series of stories of Jesus engaging women in the area of sexuality. It applies to men as well. But it's, it's amazing how much the Bible focuses on restoring sexuality for women. In John 8, we see the same point that no one is righteous, not even one. The Jewish lawyers uh, bring an adulterous woman, a woman who was caught in adultery, caught in the act, and the law says that she's supposed to be stoned to death. And so they bring her, bring her to Jesus and said, uh, well, the law of Moses says we are supposed to stone her. What do you say? And he goes, well, 
the first one um, without sin can throw the first rock, okay? And they all wait. The old men leave first, if you notice. They know <laughs> they're too far gone. The young men still want to hold on to their pride, but eventually they have to drop the rocks too. And then the woman is standing there, and Jesus is like, uh, where are your um, accusers? Um, has anyone condemned you? And she says, no one. She go, he goes, neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's amazing. The story doesn't end, though I want you to notice, not in an open love ethic. You know, we've all tried. We've all failed. Keep going. <laughs> Good luck. No, he goes, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He wants to free her from shame so that she's free to not feel that she's damaged goods. She's free not to sin. She's not fated to be a disaster. Or look at Luke 7, the sinful woman who comes into Simon's house, uh, a Pharisee. Uh, he invited Jesus to a public meal. Kind of imagine like this house. You might wonder how does, uh, uh, so this adulterous woman or this public figure, this shameful woman, that's known for sexual history. Maybe she's a prostitute, maybe she's an adulterer, but she walks around with the scarlet letter around herself. Mm -hmm. And she comes into the house. You're like, how does she get into the house for this private party? Actually, it's kind of like a labrie, okay? So uh, the Pharisee would have been very important, wanted Jesus to come in and say, hey, I got the big rabbi here, and I'm gonna show him that I'm someone important. Uh, and then the shameful woman comes in, okay? And it seems that she had already met Jesus at some point and that he had forgiven her. That she had repented and he had forgiven her. But yet somehow she hasn't had a time to thank him. And so he walks, she walks into the house and she can't even get to him and just starts crying. And she just falls on her knees and starts wiping his feet with her tears. And of course Simon's looking and is going... Pfft. That shameful. I mean, the women weren't supposed to put their hair down in the first place. But that she is blubbering and that she's washing his feet with hair and the feet are dirty. Everything is disgusting and wrong about this moment. And yet Jesus sees her. And that whole passage is about looking and seeing. And so Jesus tells Simon a story to help him see a little bit better. And says, um, hey, there was a master that had two debtors. One had a big debt and one had a lesser debt. But the master forgave both. Which one, which debtor loved him more? Which is an interesting way of asking a question about an economic question. And so Simon begrudgingly says, suppose the one with the greater debt. He's like, you're right. Have you seen this woman? Look, because Simon had judged Jesus and this woman as shameful and sinful. And yet he never really truly saw Jesus and didn't truly see this woman. But Jesus did. And, and Jesus is making the point that this woman loves much because she knows that she's been forgiven much. You have loved so little because you think that you don't need to be forgiven much. True forgiveness leads us to love others well. This is the hopeful thing. The deeper we understand God's forgiveness, the deeper we have love for others. In our greatest shame, God can forgive. In your greatest shame, God can forgive you. And often that forgiveness, I want you to hear this, often that forgiveness leads us to be a voice to others lost in the same shame. 
God often works through our greatest weakness to display his power and his love. <clears throat> I can't resist. I got to do this. John 4. I love this story so much. But you probably heard it a lot. But you, you remember John 4 is the Samaritan woman. And she goes to a well. Okay? It tells you where she lives and it describes the well that she went to. What you may not pick up on is that she doesn't go to the closest well to her. She goes to the well far away from her little neighborhood. And she goes at noon in the heat of the day when no one in their right mind goes. Because it's the watering hole. It's where you go and get your gossip and it's where you go and meet a guy. Okay? <laughs> that's, where the, that's what happens at the well. Every time you look at a well in the Bible, it's always people meeting each other. Hey, you look nice. You do look nice, by the way. <laughs> yes. Um, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and so she is avoiding her community because she has a history of sexual sin. Now, it may not be her fault. It might be the, the five lovers that she's had, the five men who've, who've kind of handed her off. It's not necessarily her fault, but she's embroiled in this sexual sin. And so she has problems with men, and she just can't look at body in the, in the eye, and she just doesn't want to be around her community. And she's, and she's in, I don't know why I always imagine her in a trailer hooking up with this guy, going out to the well, but I do. It's not biblical, but it works for me. And so she goes out to the well, and Jesus meets her. And you remember that he, he starts saying, can you give me a, a cup of water? Now she's Samaritan, Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. Samaritans are kind of like uh, half, they're like, um, um, what do you say in Harry Potter, half-bloods? Yeah. Mudbloods. Mudbloods. Uh, she's, uh, she's part Jewish and part, um, I think, Greek? Can't remember which. But um, some occupier. And so Samaritans and Jews don't like each other. They have a different place of worship. And so G Jesus is asking her to give him a cup of water. And so she's surprised because this is where a guy meets a girl. He's asking for a cup of water. Who is this? You're Jewish. What's going on here? And he starts revealing her uh, to her that he knows her whole sexual history. But she never has a sense of shame. He seems to be able to express it in a way that later she will declare. Okay? And he goes, I can offer you living water. Not just a, a little thing of water, but a one that you will never thirst. It will well up inside you and cleanse you, make you new, make you full. And it's a little detail, but it says that she leaves the water jug behind. And she runs. She runs back to her community. And she's just declaring what Jesus has done. Jesus knew everything about me. They're like, I knew everything about you. <laughs> but it's a totally different thing. Jesus knows me and he forgives me. He heals me and he restores me. Are you willing to allow God, to allow Jesus into your sexual narrative to forgive and restore you? <clears throat> so fourth reflection, the church, the new family of God. So Jesus came into the midst of our sexual shame and our dysfunction in order to renew our hearts through forgiveness <clears throat> Jesus has a surprising amount of compassion for people. It's challenging, actually. 
He also came to restore us into a new family, one centered on the power of Christ in his gospel. We see this social reconstitution of the family right away. Uh, um, Jesus is, is teaching and someone says, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. He's like, ah, oh, who's my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of my father, Amen. right? And you're just like, well, that's kind of rude. <laughs> but it's a whole social reconstitution. You're going to see how radical this is in just a minute. Um, and to understand it, how radical it was, you need to understand the Greco-Roman culture a bit. There was a, a guy named Kyle Harper. He's not a Christian. He's still out there. He wrote a book called From Shame to Sin. And he's talking about the impact of the early church on Greco-Roman culture and sexual ethics. He's not a Christian, and he's amazed at what the church, the early church, had done. And he wants to debunk the myth that the early church, that Christianity perpetuated social norms of male dominance and a denigration of its body and its desires. He says that's not the true narrative. Mm -hmm. Rather, the early Christian church revolutionized the way we see society, particularly in the area of sexuality. It was against male dominance. It was against the denigration of bodies and desires, in fact. Christians should pay very close attention to the radical early church. In ancient cultures, a person was seen um, as de uh, determined by fate, their dignity. Either you were born as freeborn, therefore you had dignity, or you were born a slave. You had no value, zero value. As a result, slaves were often sold for sexual purposes as well as manual labor. These slaves, young girls and boys, were seen like furniture. They were seen like furniture in the house. And the men would use them sexually, and when their master got tired of them, would send them into the field. Slaves could be abused. They had no rights. They were property. And they were unseen. Prostitutes had it worse. Their services were as cheap as a loaf of bread. Um, they would be used continually, constantly. Their lives were harsh and short. Uh, free, Freeborn men could use the prostitutes, but so could slaves. The prostitutes were the bottom of the barrel. So imagine Jesus, his love for prostitutes and his kindness, they're the bottom. Okay. But this is how fate, the belief in this fate, shaped society. It shaped sexual ethics. It was not a society, as we're often told, that was sexually free that the church somehow ended up repressing. <laughs> That's really false. The early church spoke of every person bearing dignity and free will, like a responsibility, even the slave, even the prostitute. It was a radical claim, and it spoke against the gods of the day. And it, and it might give you just an ounce of the impact of when Paul says in Galatians 3, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. That would have been absolutely absurd and radical. We take it so simply now, because it's reshaped the way we see things. Some think that the Apostle Paul was sexually prudish and judgmental, Nothing could be further from the truth. The early church were welcoming in slaves and prostitutes, as well as freeborn men who had been using the slaves and the prostitutes. In their church, 
They were being invited into a new relationship. You're reconstituted by the mark of Christ. He says that the corrupt practices of the Greco-Roman society were not the marks of God's new family in Christ. They were welcomed into God's family because of what Christ had done. Not on their fate or their privileges. You were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so as a result, they were called into greater freedom. They are not to be forgiven only to return to the old practices leaving the sexual system unchanged. Paul wanted to radically rechange the sexual system by looking at the new family in Christ. Paul speaks about this responsibility Christians are have to, to have toward their own bodies. They are even supposed to care about the bodies of the prostitutes. Don't you know that when you sleep with them, that you are at one? He's not denigrating the prostitute. He's, he's, he's elevating the act of sex the act of the spirituality of sex. But who did this reconstitution of the family affect most in Greco-Roman society? Women. It affected women tremendously. Prostitutes were no longer seen as objects, but as subjects. People who had their own dignity and their own freedom to come to God. Also, wives were not just subject to their husband's whims or their husband's gods. They could have their own personal relationship independent of their husband. That was unheard of. And we see two areas where women were particularly cared for in their protection. And this will be surprising. Monogamy and celibacy. We might think that's not <laughs> radical. That's traditional. It wasn't traditional. Okay. It was radically new. And look at what it does for women in the Greco-Roman culture. Women could, be, could not easily divorce their husbands, but men could easily divorce their, um, their wives. They could divorce them um, for not having a baby, but they could also divorce a woman because they spoiled their dinner or because they felt they were ugly. Just divorce. Goodbye. Okay? <clears throat> no, said Jesus. No, said Paul. Women are to be honored and held as bearing equal dignity to men. So monogamy, which was rare in the Greco-Roman culture, it, was, it did exist, but rare, and even amongst Jewish men, actually provided the protections for women. Monogamy was not repressive, but freeing, given the women's security they needed and their child's welfare. I mean, the modern day of Tinder. <laughs> Tinder actually benefits men more than women. Uh, there's an article by Vanity Fair, not a bastion of Christian truth. Uh, Mary Jo Sales wrote an article in 2015. It was called Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, about the dating scene. Um, it's going to be hard. It's hard work to date these days. Um, um, Erica, Erica Gordon says, It's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. One woman, Amanda, says, Tinder is a contest to see who cares less, and guys win a lot at caring less. She's been burnt. Okay. There's a lot to say about that. There's a lot to say about that. But overall, it seems that Tinder has benefited men more than women and has objectified women more even in the pursuit of women's own freedom. Okay. But Paul 
sees a different ethic at work in this monogamy, in this, in this protection of the woman. And even speaks of mutual consent, even a woman's consent. And so the early church, the Christian men actually, so at the time, men would be 28, 29, 30. They had time to sow their oats and then marry a 15-year-old girl, right when a girl would become, what, nubile? Is that the right word? Um, but in the early Christian church, men, when they were 15, 16, started marrying 14, 15, 16-year-old girls. And so the marriage itself started becoming equal in the early church. That's where that begins. I think this is a word for today in our pornified culture. The early church promoted a sexual ethic that diminished shame and harm in sexual relationships in society. Men were called to act more respectable toward women than their own sexual urges. <clears throat> Second, celibacy. Uh, <laughs> this also promoted the dignity of women because a woman's value in the Greco-Roman culture was could they have a baby? That was their value. If a woman could not have a child, she wasn't valued. She could be easily divorced, had no protections. And furthermore, the woman was expected to worship her husband's or her father's gods. Yet, the early church spoke about women who had their own freedom to come to God on their own without the need to produce children. It was honorable to be celibate for the sake of the kingdom. Around these discussions of celibacy, we need to remind ourselves also of the category of the eunuch. That's a strange word, perhaps, for us. A eunuch could be someone who, um, at birth, was a man who was unable to have kids uh, for some birth reason, uh, perhaps a birth defect. Uh, or it could be that the men were castrated, would change their hormones and things. Um, and they would take care of men's harems. And they were paid, but they would have no descendants and they were kind of considered freakish. Uh, and these were the only forms of kind of celibacy. But Jesus comes along and says, praise the eunuch, the one who's a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He's saying, praise the one who is celibate for the sake of the kingdom. He's, he's teaching a new ethic. <clears throat> this means celibacy. This is one of my favorite, this is my new favorite story in the Bible. And it's Acts 8. And it's the... Uh, uh, is the Ethiopian eunuch. So what happened is that the Ethiopian eunuch was a very dark-skinned man. He was a, a eunuch. He was wealthy. He was probably taking care of a harem. And he was paid, but he had no descendants. But you should need to know that eunuchs were often called really bad names in the Greco-Roman culture. Monstrosities, freaks, um, uh, weirdos. They, they had no place. They had the money, but they had no respect. Mm -hmm. Well, somehow this Ethiopian eunuch discovers the promises of God in the Bible. And he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's excited to get there. And what he has, he, he, he bought an, a scroll of Isaiah, which would have been expensive. And it was prized possession, and he would have been reading it a lot. He gets to, he gets to um, Jerusalem. He's traveled all the way from Ethiopia on his little chariot, not fancy chariot, all the way. Uh, and he gets there, and he's not allowed to go into the courts. He could not go into the temple because eunuchs were barred okay, from entering into the temple. 
That's what the law said. So he spends his day in Passover, but he never gets to go to the big thing where he gets to go to the courts of the temple. Well, he's on his way back, and he's reading. And if the story is Philip is standing there, and somehow the Spirit wishes his off, whisks him off, and he's plopped right there on this busy road. And the Ethiopian, and Philip's like, what am I doing here? And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah out loud, okay? <laughs> Ethiopian speaking Hebrew, unusual. And uh, Philip is like, runs up to him and says, do you know what you're reading? Like, he's like, how can I understand if someone doesn't explain it to me? And, uh, and so Philip says, oh, what are you reading? Uh, let me, uh, the passage uh, that the man says is, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now that's an interesting passage to be reading at that moment and for Philip to be hearing that. Eunuch. This guy, he's talking about somebody who's gone to the shears where something's going to get cut off. And this man's going to have no descendants for his life is taken from him. And so the Ethiopian asks a very interesting question. Is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? Why would he ask that? I, I always imagine it's like, he's probably like, is this Isaiah like me? Is it anyone like me? And Philip's like, oh no, this is Jesus. This is the hope. And, Philip's, and the Ethiopian eunuch would be like, what? Your hope is someone like me? And so Philip starts telling him about the gospel from that very scripture. And so the eunuch uh, uh, is riding along and he asks this unusual question. He goes, well, then there's no reason for me not to be baptized. What's surprising about this is that the eunuch had just been denied entrance into the temple. And Philip is saying, no, because of Jesus, you can go all the way in. Through Jesus, you can go all the way in. And so he's asking a negative question, hoping for a positive response. Then there's no reason for me not to be baptized. So Philip baptizes him. I always think of something very, like a little rivulet. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> splashing him somehow. <clears throat> the eunuch probably had in his mind, or went away, he was rejoicing. And he probably had in mind a, a paragraph, just a, a, just a few paragraphs later in the same passage that I just read. In Isaiah, don't let the eunuch say, I am a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. <laughs> Imagine this eunuch. He's not just brought in. He's brought in like the prodigal son and celebrated and feasted over and says, you are one of the honorable ones. He was not gender normal, you see? Because the, the eunuch, he would have been cut off, his hormones would have changed, he wouldn't have had a beard, and he would have been a freak. That's why he was a freak. And the Spirit sends Philip to go to this guy and says, come in. So monogamy and celibacy were distinct marks of the early Christian church, and it raised the honor of women, 
of eunuchs, and of slaves. This new family of God in Christ reshaped how the ancient world thought of sex and of sexuality, and it called people out of shame, out of dysfunction, and out of sin, into new life, free from guilt and shame. At the same time, it honored marriages. Okay? In seeing that the early church welcomed and honored celibates, we should repent in our failures as churches and as Christians to welcome those who do not fall into the typical pattern. <clears throat> We fail to welcome them as full partners of the gospel of Christ, those unable to have children, the divorced, the former prostitute, the abused as well as the abuser, the orphan, the eunuch who wore his shame in his very body was not seen as a freak or a monstrosity, but one who's a child, beloved. All are called to be incorporated into a family where our only claim and anyone's claim is through the free grace of Jesus. How ought we in the church to be a place of welcome, honesty, repentance, forgiveness, and discipleship? Now, in conclusion, you've been very patient. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm not going to give you an overview of what I just did. But I just wanted to, to reshape our sexual narratives within the biblical narrative. Creation where sex is good. But sex is complicated with the fall. Yet through Jesus... Sex is restored, and we are incorporated into this new family of God where we are brought into healing and wholeness. But it leads me to just some concluding comments about the church. On one hand, I want all those who struggle with shame over their sexual narratives, for whatever reason, to know that there's a real hope in the name of Jesus. Not a symbol, not a religious placebo, not a philosophy, but a transformative relationship with a personal God who can do wondrous works. On the other hand, I call on the church to consider how they practice life together as a new family of God. If we are to heal and be restored in our sexual narratives and come into maturity to, own, to understand our own sexual lives, the church, Christians, even, even I must understand the full call of what it means to be a full people called together as a family. I believe that the church has often has largely lost its voice in speaking in the areas of sexuality because it is not a place that knows how to welcome those who are not high-functioning heterosexuals in marriage with children. That's a high bar, okay? <laughs> when Julie and I struggled with infertility for several years, we noticed the church emphasized the glory of marriage and children for good reasons, but to the extent as an infertile couple, we felt marginalized. I've heard this from single people, from gay people, from trans as well, to all the people who've traveled through Liberty. Where is their welcome to them in the gospel? A young lady, a Brazilian lady coming here, and her main ministry was to transvestite prostitutes. I thought, that's unique. That's amazing. And I thought, when I was doing this, what if one of them became a Christian? said, I really like this Jesus. Can I go to your church? And I thought, how would my church respond? How would I respond? We need to repent of that. How will that person be incorporated into the family of God? How about divorced people? How about gay people, especially those who are publicly celibate? 
This is not to suggest the church is to become morally relativized, rather is to ask the question, how are we living together as the new family in Christ in such a way that welcomes people to come out of the shadows of sexual shame that calls people into a freedom that means more than just getting married and having children. I think I'm going to end there. <laughs> There's a lot more to say. There's a lot of I left unsaid. But I think it's a beginning point. Um, so um, uh, this is a time where we can have discussion. Uh, I want you to be honest in your questions. Uh, but uh, and if you, I don't. It doesn't have to be a Q and A. Uh, if you want to talk crosswise, that's great. Okay. But does anyone want to start? Have anything to say? I just want to know. You don't have to answer. I just want to know why. Why you got emotional? Why did, at which point? <laughs> uh, you know, the reason I get emotional is for several reasons. One, I get emotional because I've seen so much damage done to people. I've seen people's lives wrecked by them living in shame, by them living in darkness, and them not knowing how to come out. And I see them... As uh, Wesley Hill wrote a book called Washed in Waiting, his reflections on homosexuality and Christian faithfulness or something like that. It's, uh, some people really love it. Some people think it's contentious. Whatever. Um, my point is, is that in that book, he says that sometimes it's like him looking at everyone in church. And he's on this side. And it's, he can see it, but he's on this side of the plexiglass. And he's banging on the plexiglass and no one can hear him and he can't participate. And that breaks my heart. And I know more straight people who are helped by that book. They read it and say, I'm exactly the same. And so I see people hidden by this invisible field of darkness. And, and my heart aches for people who are locked into that. Uh, secondly, I, I um, get emotional and weep a bit because of my joy. Because I've been brought out of that darkness. And I know I know that Jesus has healed me, restored me, and promises good. And, uh, and so it, it, it's, it's tears of hope as well. Um, and so I feel both at the same time is complicated. Um, but that would be the easiest answer. Okay. Thanks for asking. And also I cry because I know that um, you know, the reason I redid this lecture, I did this lecture years ago. And every time I came and I would come <coughs> over and people were like, I'm like, what are you listening to? They're like, oh, sexuality and shame. I was just listening to your voice and I was, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then years and years, people always, always listening to sexuality and shame, sexuality and shame. And I was like, I need to listen to what I said. <laughs> I don't know if I agree my, with myself anymore. Uh, and so I went back and I was like, okay, I, I want to redo this. Uh, and so, um, and so part of my emotion is just knowing that this could be a message of hope for people to break through darkness and out of that. So that's also why I get a bit emotional. So. Anyone else? Um, okay, Danae. Yeah, go ahead. Then uh, Fred and then... Anthropology okay. sometimes uh, separates guilt and shame cultures. Hmm. That's right, yeah. And... Uh, I think 
the West has generally been thought of as a guilt culture. Mm. But uh, you, your lecture clearly doesn't follow that line. Right. I don't think that any culture is totally free of guilt or shame, um, as if it's simply a, a binary, as, a, as an either or. Um, I know that in Eastern cultures, you're going to have more of shame, honor and shame cultures. In the West, you're going to have much more of a, um, a view of the law, much more are you guilty or innocent. And so maybe they, they act, so they act unshamefully because they're like, well, it's legal. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. and they can just be barefaced, unashamed. And we don't always feel shame when we should, and sometimes we feel shame when we shouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, in the West, we typically try to evaluate our shame by are we guilty or not guilty? Is the law allowing this or not allowing this? And that's typical. Where in the East, you have much more of a community, and that's very neoliberal, it's very individualistic. In the East, you have much more of a communal where uh, you don't want to shame your family, you don't want to shame your culture, you don't want to shame your corporation or your company or whatever it is. It's much more uh, close to the nerve, I guess. Um, but you see, you see guilt happen in Eastern cultures and you see shame happen in our cultures. Uh, and so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, people feel shame and uh and so i don't want to to say that there's no such thing as shame in our culture it's just a human it's an attribute of being human in the uh, in the midst of the fall is, is that yeah, that's good yeah. okay. so with david and bathsheba yeah god forgave david mm. but he still had a lot of struggles afterwards and there was a lot of really bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. So is that still the same? What do you, oh, does that is that principle still at work? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, I've known people. Um, uh, there was a person that came to Canadian Libri. Uh, they were in their sixties. They um, were married. Uh, uh, it was a man who was married to a man uh, and became a Christian. Okay. Had just become a Christian. Had AIDS and cancer. Okay. Uh, had been given AIDS by someone who lied to them. Uh, married, uh, married to someone and it wasn't even like, it was a marriage of convenience, really. It wasn't one of, it was pursued by sexual desire and so all the all the interpretations of the, this person would have looked like from the church would have been like and when he was uh i won't go into it all but when he was little um he's he he started turning tricks when he was young okay in the park like samuel's age and he would go to the park and he would meet men and make some money and his parents were very not good um, and it really confused him he was bisexual and uh, but his grandmother always said you know what I love you and she was the only one that said I love you and she was the only Christian in the family she handed him a Bible and in his 20s and he went and burned it okay? 
But then in his 60s, something happened. And it was just like, I am loved. And, uh, man, he's complicated. He's complicated, and he has a mess all around him. And yet, he is loved. He's forgiven. And when he goes into the new kingdom, into the new heavens and new earth, he'll be fully restored. And all that shame will just... It's already fallen away in Jesus, but then it will be fully gone. Because he still bears consequences in his body because of these things. Um, There are... um, that young man who molested his sister, he repented. He was truly forgiven. Yet the consequences still exist. Because sometimes when we think of forgiveness, we think that it's just okay to disappear. Um, and that's what's so hard sometimes about forgiveness because we think, oh, the consequences are still out there and loose. How can I be forgiven? Because the consequences are still continuing. Mm-hmm. And they're continuing through generations. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that I do now will continue through generations. Uh, I just pray for the mercy of Jesus over all of it. But consequences continue, but forgiveness is still real. Mm-hmm. And God forgives me of my past, and He forgives me of my future. He holds me as I walk a path of obedience. But consequences still happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's still, it's still true. It's still true, and that's hard for us, and that's why we have to continue to go to Jesus again and say, um, restore me from consequences. Restore me from this. And sometimes there is fuller healing. Uh, Francis and Edith Schaefer would talk about substantial healing. They're the ones who founded Libri. And so they would say, in Jesus, there is substantial healing. And so there is a truth of healing. It's substantial. It gives you strength with addictions and with um, dignity and identity. They're substantial, but it's not... 100% yet that's not until Jesus comes so um, but at the but but it gives us courage and strength to say okay I take another step I am forgiven another step I am forgiven Uh, it's a moment by moment forgiveness that we receive and so I think it's Jude it says even though I fall Jesus will make sure that he keeps me up right so um, so yeah did you want to follow that up did you want to say more, or was that just... No. Okay, <laughs> great. I was wanting to ask almost an, the identical question, and so yeah. I, I found that helpful. But what was on the other side of my picture to that question, um, which was a bit of a struggle question, you know, the forgiveness, yet all these mm-hmm. consequences continue, was the example was David and Bathsheba, and yet David was loved by God in a very special way or pretty unique way and it was through David's line that Jesus came Mm. Uh, and so I was weighing up those difficult Mm. thoughts Mm. about the consequences and then seeing at the same time well actually uh, God in his sovereignty um, looking with a vision that's way beyond anything that we can possibly have um, was doing other things as well yeah yeah there's much more at work than just the negative consequences Mm -hmm. and there's uh and there's even more that work than just positive consequences there's more than cause and effect at at work in the world there's god's god's providence at work in all things yeah yeah thanks martin that's good 
So what what is that? You said uh, Matthew or David? Matthew and Bathsheba. What is it? Uh, David. David. David and Bathsheba. What, what is the bad thing that he's done after? Can you name some? Uh, what are the consequences of what happened later? Yeah. Or? Uh, well, um, his his one of his son raped one of his uh, one of his sons raped one of his daughters. Okay. And they were half brother, half sister. Okay. He raped, and then he didn't do anything. Okay, you, you mentioned that, though. And, then and so there was social chaos in the family. Yeah. I mean, it's really bad. There's lots of things. I mean, he had lots of wives, lots of competing brothers and sisters. Okay. It was political. Okay. It continues. In fact, the whole nation, so God's people was known as Israel. Mm -hmm. But because of David's sin, it oh. actually divided the family into two, um, two categories. Uh, Judah and Israel, and mm -hmm. they were kind of warring against each other and living a different promise in a sense. Okay. Uh, but yeah, um, David not being able to uh, to to even address the injust sexual injustices happening mm -hmm. in his own children because of his own sexual sin. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And not giving his and his brought his son was like this is not right. This is mm -hmm. what are you doing? Um, mm -hmm. And David just wouldn't meet him. He's like I don't want to meet you. Okay. Don't come around. And, uh, and Absalom went and was acting on behalf of the king, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. He was like, hey, do you want, um, oh, you're from this tribe? Uh, I'll give you justice. Come here and I'll make sure you get justice. So it's interesting that that was his kind of coup to take over the nation. Because okay. he's like, David, he's not going to give you justice. Okay. He's not giving me justice. Uh -huh. He's not a just guy. Okay. If you want justice, come to me. Okay. I'll take care of it. <laughs> and uh, and that's what happened. He wanted chariots and horses and stuff. Okay. Uh, and so he ended up actually trying. He uh, he kicked he kicked his father out. His father ran, and so he ended up sleeping with all of his wives in order to show his dominance and his kingship. Mm -hmm. And but then there was a war, and then his son, um, uh, that man dies. Okay. And then David is restored as king, but with this whole disaster on his hands. And then the mm -hmm. kingdom divides. I mean, there's tons of consequences, okay. and some that I'm not even going into. But that's what I was pointing at. All right. I don't know much, but I remember that I watched the. Uh, I was. I got research curious, and now because of the famous Netflix, I got into the Bible, TV, and all of yeah. those series, and I saw that there's lots of sexuality going on, especially <laughs> amongst the Rockefeller. No, I'm just kidding. But like the the power, the powerful people that they just go and have like many wives and jealousies yeah. and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure if it's that. It seems to me that they're finding excuses to have men. <laughs> it's right. And, is, and thank, you, thank you for bringing that up because I want to say that sometimes people look at the Old Testament and see yeah. that there was polygamy, yeah. um, that, the, that the kings would have many wives. Yeah. There's a variety of reasons for this. Uh, ancient culture practice, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But some people think just because it's described in the Bible that it was also prescribed mm -hmm. or allowed. But actually, it, it was nothing that was ever desired by God. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was an allowance that was happening, but it was still something that God was judging, even though it was happening, even amongst his own people. So. <sighs> and then also family lines and all that. It gets complicated, yeah. and it's another culture. But Now I'm going to have sex on my mind all night. <laughs> <laughs> Good sex, right? Not the bad kind, right? <laughs> Liz.
segue into this question because I'm not <laughs> sure exactly how to phrase it, but um, it seems like a lot of people I know, a lot of my friends, um, have left Christianity because they see it as repressive, sort of like you were talking about before, but um, in, in sexuality and um, see sex as such a central part to our identity, which I think is true in many ways. Um, but that that's like something that we really need to like ex everybody needs to explore and experience to some level. Um, experience what? Experience sex and like experience the sexual act. <laughs> sexual acts, um, and and like that they um, can't be really like fully human without that to some extent. Um, and it also seems like things have changed a lot because there are just so many more single people than there used to be. And if you were married at 15, like that would be a very different story in, in the Old Testament. So I've also heard people say like, yeah, we shouldn't think about it the same way now because the, the social scene is so different with people getting married mostly in their 30s now. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just wondering like um, what you would say to that, like how, what does it look like to still have an identity as a sexual being when you're, if, you're, if you're celibate? Um, like what is that how can we see that as not repressive um, and that you could still celebrate sexuality because honestly to me most of the time it feels like more of a burden <laughs> um, that, that sexual desire as a celibate person yeah, yeah than something to celebrate like I wish that it did but because I don't really see that much like use for it right now or or, or it, it just feels more painful honestly mm -hmm. so I wonder if there's like yeah what is a way that we could see that there's something something that can still be gained or celebrated, like if you're celebrated, you know. <laughs> you got your big laugh, Liz. You've been working on that for a while. She's tried it on me many times. I just never laughed. You found your people, Liz. Um, <laughs> That's a complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because there's so many areas to address, so maybe I'll have to kind of talk myself into an answer. Uh, I think one one thing I want to think about is that, uh, I mean, you, I would refer people to a lecture called Is Sex a Human Right? Liz gave that lecture, <laughs> so you should know the answer to your question. Uh, Secondly, yeah, uh, stating one of the problems is that people are hitting puberty at younger ages and are getting married later. So there has been a physiological change in people hitting puberty at ages of 9 and 10 because of the proliferation of porn, and uh, pr particularly the proliferation of porn on the Internet. It was something that was like the magazine that the dad might have hiding under a mattress or in a closet, um, or wife. But now it's just smartphones, right? Easy access, and uh, and they're not wondering about the ethics of your family. And so that has actually caused our our physical bodies, children's physical bodies, to adapt more quickly. To the sexual act, so they're actually hitting puberty at younger ages. So is that because those kids have been looking at porn, or because it's like a, a larger like 
social influence somehow? Well, I mean, using evolutionary language is called a meme. And so what happens, and this is something that you don't have to get into whole evolutionary theory to get into, but what it, the, the, um, the idea is that when there's a cultural shift, it actually can cause a physical change. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, maybe the, the color of, like how much melatonin is in skin or something like that where people live. Uh, but also cultural activities. Um, can happen and so people say that the more you look at a smartphone it changes brain structure it changes neural circuitry um, and so uh, it can actually make changes not just in the individual but actually broadly and it's passed down and so they're saying and so the idea is that children are hitting puberty early on because of the proliferation of these things it could be also just GMOs right <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I mean, maybe that, okay? I'm not going to put everything on porn, okay? Um, but it, it's a combination of factors, probably. My point is, Liz, is that people are hitting puberty earlier, and they're getting married later. So what do you do with sexual desire as a, a, as a person who's a, who's a Christian who wants to feel, um, who wants to be faithful in celibacy? Between 9 and 32. <laughs> 33, sorry. Um, <clears throat> what do you do? Okay. Especially when there's just not a lot of guys or they're just on Tinder and they're not looking for a relationship. Uh, I don't know. That's my answer. Um, what I would say is that we can't blame the church as something sexually repressive just because our culture has created these conditions. It might be something that the culture needs to change. Because we think, well, now that we have this, don't you feel terrible? It's like, yeah, I feel terrible, but does it mean that the church is repressive because of that? Well, maybe if we we go the avenue of what the church has called us to, then actually it will make positive changes or changes that we can bear. So so the 15-year-old's getting married in the early church. Um, but also you had the support network of the early church. Um, it wasn't just two wild 15-year-old kids getting in their truck and trying to live. Like, you can't even get a mortgage nowadays, right? People can't afford their own home. They have student debt. Um, uh, people are on Tinder, and you're hitting puberty. early. It's bad, okay? It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. But I do believe that the early church, uh, not the early church, sorry, the church as it exists today, the gospel as it exists today, as I should say, the gospel as it exists today can lead us to start thinking, how do we need to start functioning, not by the dictates of culture, but by the dictates of the gospel so that we might be a light to the culture. Not something that's against, but something that that calls the culture to be something developing. Um, that. That culture might look at the church and say, I like what they got. Okay? That would be amazing. And in fact, I do think that sometimes people will come into Labrie. I've met people who are not Christian. And, um, and who they, they look at the church and they look at healthy sexual relationships and say, Wow, I wish I had that. I know this one woman who was in a dating relationship. And she was dating a guy, polyamorous. 
she was pagan. And she was just like, I just wish I had like a good guy. Not a guy who was trying to find himself all the time. Okay. Just a good guy who knew what he was about and he was for me. And, and she spoke at an atheist group led by a pastor, but an atheist group. And, and she got up and she goes, ladies, I have found good men. And everyone's like, <gasps> and she goes, and they're in the church. Of course, I've talked to women in the church who are wondering where they are. <laughs> Tell them to stay away from our men. <laughs> but my point is, is that I think that the, uh, how might we, I don't know, is my honest answer. I really don't know. I have to think about that more. I think it's a real struggle. I think that we need to say that maybe some of the negative factors are from culture. And that just because it's like, okay, um, digging is a problem. Well, what should we do? We should dig faster. Like, maybe we're having all these sexual issues and just say, well, maybe you should just have more free sex. Well, is that the solution? No, I think that actually probably is making it worse, mm -hmm. which is what the Vanity Fair article was saying. Oh, Tinder promises all this freedom. Now we don't have to have all these hangouts. We can just have hookups. And it's created less dating, less romance, less commitment. So it's not improving by saying we just need to have more sexual acts more experience of sexual acts, it doesn't seem like it's actually improving the life of people. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, no, I get to get my own. Right. And then, of course, you have these people who are not getting their own, and they're called incels, you know, and they're wanting to cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that they have a right beef with culture, but I'm not agreeing with their means. Incels is involuntary celibates. Um, and uh, these men who are angry that some men get all the hookups and they don't, even though they have the Tinder apps. Right? Uh, so, yeah, I just think that the, the, the thing that's being promoted by your friends uh, that are saying, well, the church is just repressive and I'm just going to be free. They bought into a lie that's actually perpetuating the problems that they're experiencing. And the church may be not so repressive. Maybe we need to take a new look at celibacy. Taken, I mean, there's people who have come to Labrie who have, I shouldn't just be looking at you, Liz, um, preaching at Liz, um, but I've seen people who come to Labrie who say um, they're asexual. They're asexual not because they don't have sexual desire, but because they don't want the grief. They don't want the grief of the sexual culture. What is asexual? Asexual is that, um, um, that they, they do not choose to be sexual toward anyone. Well, usually it's like you don't have sexual desire or attraction. It can mean that, but people are now starting to take it as an identifier. So it, it used to mean that someone who doesn't have sexual desire. And sometimes they've lost sexual desire because they're just like, I'm not interested in that. Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion in people's own bodies about, you know. Uh, but... <clears throat> So yeah, I, I think that the church has a lot more to offer. We just need to start going back to the basics um, to say what, what can we say that is good about sex, what is, what is good about family, what's good about marriage, and what's good about the new family in Christ. I think the church would be a lot stronger voice in sexuality if they actually were a place where singles divorced, gay people, trans people, uh, different races, um, and anyone who wanted to call on the name of Jesus for their as their savior, 
be incorporated into his family, into his discipleship. I think that if the church was doing that, and I can't even imagine, honestly, what that would look like. That was hard for me to imagine. But if the church was doing that, then I think the church would have a lot stronger voice and be a lot more persuasive, even though I think there will always be antagonists to the gospel. What do you think? Do you, can you think of ways that the early church did that, like, practically? That is there anything that could be paralleled today, or do we need to find totally new ways? No, well, I mean, I was trying to make points where uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was brought in. But, like, practically we didn't see how, like, what actually happened afterwards, kind of, like, what were the practical steps that they did to include people or whatever. How do you mean? Um, like, how would they, how would, <coughs> how would they practically live out, like, being a new family? Like, did, did single people live with families or, you know, what did they Right. Do? Yeah, no, they would, um, in some instances, they would share their common good. They, they would, they would sell property. They would, they would put money and have a common pot. Some people were able to generate income or had income, uh, and they would put it in a place where the poor were not poor. Um, I mean, it's, it's economic, political, sexual as well, like on how. And so, yeah, singles. Uh, Paul was a single person who had like, you know, a group. Peter was married, and so it wasn't just like singles versus married people, but they were all on the mission, and they were all working together. Um, and so, yeah, you saw people living together. You saw people eating together, which is much more important then than it is now. Uh, you can eat with complete strangers, but then it was like eating was like an act of you're in the family. So, um, or at least an act toward that. And uh, so eating together, prostitutes, slaves, Jews, Gentiles, masters, all eating together as equals, that was happening. That was being demonstrated. And so people were trying to, people thought it was weird and they couldn't figure out what was happening. It was so radical. Um, but yeah, there was, there's, there's things that we can look in the New Testament as examples, um, though it would include the economic and the political. And, the, uh, but. and so the church today, uh, uh, Wesley Hill, I mentioned earlier, wrote an article on singleness and marriage. And he's a gay man who, um, in, in faithfulness to Jesus, wants to be celibate. And he goes around speaking about this. Well, he, he says that one of the key things for him is the relationship he has with this family. And so he lives downstairs, they live upstairs, and they eat all their meal, they eat meals together, they go to, they watch movies together, and that's actually giving him a fullness of life. His family meaning his parents? No, no, no. Uh, a family friend, like... These are his friends. Oh, 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 oh. Because what happens is that we almost have in culture, it's like, okay, well, there's the single category. Once you get married, then, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the married category mm -hmm. later. Um, I made it. <laughs> Hope you make it over the ocean, you know. Um, and then they have kids. And then they're, oh, I have new friends. Uh, well, no, this is like, okay, you're, you're married. Now you have kids. And he gets to experience. He was there for the birth. He was there sharing life with them. So uh, I think that that's a radical expression of the gospel. Oh, that's good. And healing to this man. Mm -hmm. He actually believes in like having covenantal friendships where you like make friendship vows to each other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Mean, he's pretty intense. Yeah, he's intense about it, but it's interesting. He just, he just, he has a book called Spiritual Friendship and he says that we just have such a low value for friendship in our, mm -hmm. in our culture and that, that goes such a long way for everyone, married or single, to help what? you. 
What's his name? Wesley Hill. Yeah. I think it's hard for people growing up now to realize what they're missing. You know, growing up, I guess I'm old. <laughs> but Back know, in my day. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there, there was no birth control pill. So there was always sort of, you know, that was a concern. Uh, but just to say, but there was such a lack of sophistication, uh, such an innocence, you know, about the things that were sexual. Um, it wasn't being shoved on, at us on billboards, on every movie we saw. Uh, you couldn't have something on TV where even a husband and wife were in the same bed. They had to have twin beds. Yeah. You know. Dave Van Dyke show. You know, I agree that it sort of makes it, but it allowed, for me anyway, growing up, this long period of, of, of relative innocence. Mm -hmm. You know, just to walk down the street holding a girl's hand. It was, holy cow. You know, and I don't think anybody, I just, from what I can gather, don't, they're getting, you know, without even pornography. Just watching shows on TV, how it's just it's natural that, that if you kind of like each other, you have sex, you know, and then you move on to your next partner. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just such a different world, and I just don't think that people growing up today have any concept of what, of what they're missing out on. You can't for any time. You, no. The same generation could have said that about the time you were growing up, too, mm -hmm. but I totally understand. I, well, <laughs> you'll never know what you're missing. No, I, but I, well, I think I don't know how. You know, like for my parents, my grandparents, I think it was probably the same thing. I don't, you know, um, but I, th I think I'm just, <laughs> I'm just ahead of that. You know, be, be, I think the birth control pill had an awful lot to do with it. You know, for a start, because when you took you took away that fear, not now, now you have parents putting their 12 and 13 year old kids on birth control. You know what? What's that telling them? You know, I mean, so where where is those age uh, the age of innocence? It just sort of like it doesn't exist anymore. Okay, so a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, do you know that a film was rated X? Um, like I think it's in the fifties, maybe even the sixties. Um, it would be considered rated X if it had the F word in it. Well, they didn't ha didn't exist. That it, shows it, you how far that, that it it did. It, you wouldn't. Have I mean, that. my my kids have watched movies with the F word in it, right? Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> and they're ten and eight. Yeah. It's a different culture for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, when they have gone with the wind, because they said da "damn" in it. That's it, it, right. It, it, it was it was it was really, you know. I think you're supposed to say the D word. But 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 it, it's true, you know. I mean, it is, but I do want to say this that. Um, I, I don't buy into kind of the reinterpretation of history and saying, oh, it was just as sexual, it was just as crazy, but it was just kind of repressed and not shown. Uh, mm -hmm. I, do, I do think that there is something that is consistent with human nature, that we can always seek depraved kind of forms. Uh, and I would also say that just because what was happening in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s doesn't mean that it was happening in the 1820s. Um, or the 1770s. I mean, William Wilberforce, the, he is known for the abolition of slavery, but his whole mission was the reformation of morals in England because England was so sexually immoral. Mm -hmm. Deeply. I mean, it, it would challenge us today. It would, it would rival us today. And so we can't just kind of say that all cultures prior or, 
but it, but you have to say, okay, why is there moments where it seems better? It may not have been perfect. Human nature always is. But I do believe at that time there was a high value of family, um, the dignity of women, uh, um, the protection of children, the love of children. Um, you know, and there were there were perversions and there were scandals going on, but they were relativized. They were lessened. And also they weren't put on the public news every moment, right? We're inundated with it now. It becomes the new norm. So I do think that cultural practices, I mean, birth control became popular in the 50s and 60s, but it was introduced in the 20s, if I'm not mistaken, by Margaret Sanger. She was the one that was promoting it. I don't think it was a birth control pill. Uh, it wasn't maybe the birth control pill, but it was birth control, like uh, condoms or something like mm -hmm. that. But it was a promotion of, uh, of um, contraception, I should say. Well, there's been all sorts it of was, cultures, you know, whether it's in some of the Greek cultures or some of the Roman cultures and whatnot. You go way back, you know, time of Christ and the centuries afterwards. So I'm not saying it was just always like that, but I'm just saying yeah. it, it, what it, all I can talk is my own life experience, really, my, my own time growing up. You know, it was it was so different than what it is now, and I just I feel you know bad for for my grandchildren. You know, sort of growing up in this and having all this stuff shoved at them. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you know, uh, I want to say two things. One, that yeah, you know, I get moments of despair. I'm like, okay, um, I'm trying to do best by my kids. I'm sinful. I'm not doing perfect. Um, they'll have to suffer the consequences of my parenting. Um, hopefully they learn to grow up and forgive me and to become their own independent person in Christ. I hope for that. I pray for that. Um, but I, I can despair over, okay, all my best parenting, they still have to go into the world and find somebody, you know. Mm -hmm. And and who are they going to find, you know. Uh, and And I'm not saying, oh, they have to marry down or anything. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's so complicated for them. They, what do they do? They need to go on a dating app because there's no such thing as dating anymore. Not because they're looking for a hookup, but because that's just how people date. And I know a lot of people who have actually married and have happy lives by meeting on Tinder, right? What is uh, Tinder? I don't even know what yeah, you're talking what about. Is it? Uh, <laughs> Tinder is an app that so like a, a a thing that you can put on your phone, and that you just press on it and it opens the application, the software. And, uh, and it basically, you put your profile on it, like Facebook or something, and to say, I'm interested, like the classifieds. But you're putting pictures of yourself on there. Maybe showing your tats and your muscles, showing your shirt <laughs> off or something. And, uh, <laughs> and, set, and you know, show my tattoo of the, the, the Ichthys <laughs> to show that I'm a Christian and cool. Um, something like that. Uh, <laughs> but what it's, I'm just totally joking. It's really good that you didn't have to date in the Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's original purpose though it has been now broadly more broadly used but one of its original and probably one of the primary purposes of it now is to find someone else that you want to have sex with and so uh, you swipe right or swipe left swipe right is if you like them and say hey I think you're attractive and I would like to meet you and maybe we can um, hook up okay have some sex and uh, and the other person like I think you're attractive too and then they start texting and then let's see what happens so that's kind of how Tinder works basically mm. 
Um, well, maybe dating apps becomes the norm for how Samuel and Sarah Beth have to date. That's already the norm. Yeah. So how do I prepare them for that when I've never had that experience? Mm -hmm. Right. And so I can despair. Me too. <laughs> look for someone True. else? Like, doesn't do that also? But, uh, so how do I teach them the ethics of how to engage Tinder? I have a friend of mine who... Uh, Wow, I'm just getting anecdotal tonight. But I'm always anecdotal, sorry. Um, my, my friend said she went on Tinder. She didn't want to go on Tinder. She was very ashamed of going on Tinder at first. But her main mo um, um, thing says, I will not sleep with you. That was her kind of like blurb. <laughs> and she goes, guy still said, hey, do you want to sleep together? But um, at least she said I was up front. Okay. Um, so there are ways of people navigating such difficult terrain okay so that's the despairing side but I also want to have a lot of hope okay because my parents probably looked at me growing up and saying how in the world is this going to work <laughs> right and their parents and their parents right and so we just need to trust Jesus we need to trust and just say okay Jesus I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to fight for this I'm going to contend for this and please bless me it doesn't mean that there's a guarantee. There's no like promise for successful sex and marriage as Joshua Harris promised. But <laughs> there was a book that promised this. And but okay, it's not gonna be a promise. But it will help it will it will protect you in wholeness. Yeah. And then know that marriage is a is a battle no matter who you marry. Okay? If, or I mean, if been, you marry, you just sort of wind yeah. up together and you just sort of stay together and <laughs> never get married. It can. Yeah. But anyway, let's not go. But I'm just saying there is hope. Let's just yeah. keep fighting, contending. Okay. It's not to say that a lot of things aren't better, too. There are you know, things I, I that are think, better. for instance, I think fathers are a lot more involved with their kids now than, than what, they, what they were when I was growing up a lot more. That's true. You know, um, yeah. and uh, I, I think there was a lot more abuse of... of of, of, yeah. of so there are things that you know, are better. I there think there's things, things that are better now too. So don't get me wrong. So we just keep our eyes on Jesus. Yeah. 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 Fred. One of the things that the church could do better is teach boys and young men that uh, that it's it's good to commit themselves to working hard mm. for a for a relationship, for a, for a woman. Yeah. Uh, Forty years ago, I had I had a house with tenants. We were all students. It was my house, and the women in the house said they didn't want the mess of uh, sleeping with people they knew. They wanted. They wanted uh, anonymous sex. Yeah. And sex with people you know is messy because it, there's commitment involved. Mm. There's hard work involved. Mm. We need to teach our boys that it's good to work hard for your woman mm -hmm. and stick with her. Yeah. We're not teaching our boys that. No. How are you going to convince them? What's your, what's your mm -hmm. sale? 
What's your sales pitch? How, how are you going to convince them? Because it's... I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I know that, that it's not... We don't tell them stories of commitment. We don't... Mm-hmm. We don't prepare... We, we've cancelled paper routes, so we don't teach the boys hard, how to work hard from early. Um, there's, there are very few manual jobs left. Very few. You can't send the boys out to dig in the garden because you don't have gardens. Uh, we, so, so it's a, it's a. So, da- uh, what you're what you're saying is that the um, the hard work starts from young, and not you're not just saying like hard work and commitment. Late, like when they become teenagers and adults, is going to be directed towards a woman, but that. Possibly, but that um, at a young age you can teach what's going to be coming. Yes. By getting them to do work and having expectations and saying it's not all about you, it's about um, your responsibilities, and later in life that will translate into knowing, um, having a plan for. Um, a family and knowing how to is that is that what you're yep, saying? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> 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 is that a thumbs up? Um, What's that? Is that a thumbs up? Were you giving a thumbs up to that, or are you just clarifying? I was just I was just I was just I was just clarifying my dad. Okay. Okay. No, it's great. It's great. Yes. Yeah. Clark, there's something so beautiful and attractive about your relationship with Julia, mm-hmm. and there's something so beautiful and attractive about you know some older of the older generation, I see them together and they're holding hands and they have a deep love for each other. And I think when we talk about the early church, there was that huge, there was something so beautiful about the love and an attraction that they had for each other and living in community. And that's a pull. We, and that is so beautiful and so attractive. I want my kids to want that. And I want my community out there where I'm engaged to see you, to see the others that are truly living and walking with Jesus and to want that. Whether they're willing to work for it is between them and Jesus, but I want them to want that. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is to have that love in my own heart. And it just should naturally flow. That should be so attractive. That's why we're here, because we love you. We see the beauty in your love of Jesus and really that's all I have to give it's just if I don't have that love in my own heart to give then it won't be attractive it's still hard work being married is just hard work yeah. but when it's you it's easy for Julia but for me yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh she's not here oh well <laughs> happily being celibate for is so attractive when it's genuinely happily because it's God's call there's mm-hmm. something so attractive about that it's just there should be a pull mm-hmm. well that's how the early church developed they just read a and book on that exactly. first, like, first three centuries yeah. you know of Christianity that was they, they, that was what drew people was the, was the celibacy mm-hmm. uh, was there a commitment to, you know to, to, to marriage and, and, and their love of 
you know, love of neighbor, love, even how they took care of each other, you know, and even love of enemy. Yeah, we need more examples. <clears throat> we need more examples of saying, oh, I can see how it is. Um, just so you know, um, thank you for, you know, inflating my relationship with Julia. <laughs> uh, Julie and I, um, some there was a, early on in our in our life in Labrie, uh, because this is really much a home, and someone saw Julie and I. This is before we had kids, and we really started arguing. But when, <laughs> but uh, we we had this relationship, and this young lady came to us at the very end of term after about three months and said, "I just want to thank you, Julia. Um, um, you and Julia." You just really meant a lot for me, and it really changed my understanding of marriage. And, and I was just like, Whoa, "What? What happened?" Like, yeah. and I was like, "So, um, what was it?" You know, I just wanted a kind of a little bit of compliments. I was like, "Give me a little bit of compliments." Um, I'm liking this, and and she's like, "Well, it was really just one thing. I really liked how much you and Julia argued in front of us." Uh, like you're welcome. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> um, but it was a, it was something that she never saw in her parents. It was just like we're not going to argue. We're not going to be human. We're not going to contend for this. And so she saw that we were contending for each other. Now my kids do not like to see us fight, um, but I hope that one day that they'll see that we're contending for each other. So mom and dad are not fighting. We're fighting for each other, and we're fighting because it's important. Um, and so we try to communicate that, but yeah. But yeah, we need examples. I need examples. And mine was my mother. She, uh, my mother, my dad was not an easy man, abusive and generous and funny and mean. He was complicated. Um, and he died. He died uh, 10 years ago or so. But <clears throat> my mom wanted, my mom left him four times. But she came back four times. And I remember I was 13, and I was just like, I just want her to leave that guy. And we went to school, and we were all excited because we knew that she was going to be gone when we came home. And, uh, and my dad was going to eat sour grapes. And I got home, and my mom and dad were like holding hands, talking at the table. And I was like, oh, <laughs> defeat. <laughs> you know, don't make up, mom. You know, leave this guy. Uh, and I had a lot of problems with him. Uh, we had a remarkable reconciliation later on in life. But, uh, but my mom always put up with a very, very, very difficult marriage. Uh, and she always read her Bible every morning and wept. And just was just doing it. Uh, and she stayed married to him. And when he died, she had a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, and she expressed a lot of it, probably a little bit too much to me. She could express it to her therapist, but just don't do it to me, but a lot to me um, and to my siblings. But it was because of her, her staying in the relationship. And then it was actually after he died that I actually came to understand that it wasn't just her staying in the marriage, it was him staying in the marriage. They were both guilty. Yeah. And, and so now when I think about my marriage, I'm like, you know, Julia, I says, I want to choke her and she wants to stab my eyes. Okay. That's how we feel. Um, <laughs> but, that works for me. 
but for each other, right? Yeah. We're maimed and we're going to go maimed together. Um, <laughs> but, um, but we're contending for it. And, I, and I, I see my parents, I'm just like, they contended for it. It was difficult, it was burdensome, but it was good for me. Because I'm like, like you said, you know, holding on to something. And, um, and so I try to do things that my dad didn't do. I try not to disparage my wife, though I can at times. But I try not to and, um, and be committed to the children in a way that my father wasn't. But, you know, you try to do better. But I also look at my parents and they did better than me. My dad did better than me in many ways. I just have to say that. Um, but, but yeah, we do need examples. And it was because my father and my mom and contending for each other that gives me resilience. And we need more examples. And the hope of Jesus in the midst of that. Well, it's late. Um, if you want to keep talking, we can we can keep talking, but let's just have a time for um, people can leave if they like. Okay.